0: So welcome, Dr. Mimi Scheller. Thank
1: you. Nice to be with you.
0: (laughs) Your book is titled Island Futures, Caribbean Survival and the Anthropocene. Did I pronounce yeah. that correctly? Yes. Okay. Your mom, Estelle uh, Scheller, what a world-class badass. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you wrote this to her at some point in your life, quote, our interests and beliefs have converged at so many points that even while we may be separated by space, we always walk together with me, with, with me and my heart. Your life will always be a guiding light for me, the finest example I can emulate as I make decisions in my own life. Tell us about who she was and a little bit more about what she meant to you. Sure.
1: Yeah. So, you know, I, I wrote that letter to her when I was, it was on her 50th birthday, I think, and I was about 23 years old. And then I found it much later and reread it and it just amazed me and made me like reflect on, on her influence, which was so, it's like so inside me that mm-hmm. I sometimes need to like, remember and step back because we're, we were so close in our, in our interests. So Stell, my mom was, you know, born into kind of, you would say a, a lower middle class Jewish family in Philadelphia in a tight knit neighborhood. You know, they lived in, Row houses and their, you know, either the parents or grandparents of my mom had come from Eastern Europe back in, you know, the 1890s, early 1900s. So it's the typical, you know, American immigrant story. And her family, they all, you know, they, they, I guess they had the opportunity to get a public education and she went to through the public schools in Philadelphia mm-hmm. and then went to Temple University and also her brother you know they committed themselves to what i would call like working serving others and working for others mm-hmm. and so her, her her brother my uncle became a doctor a pediatrician working at children's hospital in Philadelphia mm-hmm. and my mom stell became first a, a social worker and then trained later A little bit later in life, she went back to graduate school and got training in special education and became a special ed teacher in the Philadelphia public school system, working with autistic children. But both of them, her and her brother, like alongside their commitments to children and working with children. My mom had this incredible political commitment to trying to like make the world a better place. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. she was a real political activist and social movement sort of engager throughout her life. She she w- went to protests and marches. She worked with local neighborhood organizations and she the issues she was involved in were both local and global so it could be education in philadelphia or labor rights or anti-gun violence was a, a big issue trying to get gun control and also then things like central america and the caribbean and criticizing the role of the us policies in the region and kind of fighting for democracy and social justice and people's movements locally and globally so that's what she did right right to the end of her life you know she was still out at the women's march and you know right right until the end i mean she always wrote to her politicians whether you know the local city or the her senators and Haiti was one of the causes that she was supporting you know in the in the 1990s in particular after the first coup against Aristide mm-hmm. there was a lot of local activists who had sort of come to her or- to speak at, she was secretary for the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. Mm-hmm. And so those organizers from Haiti would share their stories. And then the role in a way of the movements here in the U.S. was to amplify the voices of the Haitian movements mm-hmm. and to really give people a different perspective on things, because we get such a, you know, a media, American media lens on so much international news. And you have to kind of Unless you're in the diaspora and you know people, you have to kind of work hard to to get other points mm-hmm. of view. Mm-hmm. And so that was part of their kind of people to people exchanges was to sort of learn from people there what was happening and mm-hmm. what their demands were and then mm-hmm. try to amplify that voice. And I think we need to keep doing that today. Yes.
0: How, who's your audience for this book?
1: So it. I have to admit, it's a quite academic book. <laughs> Sorry,
0: <laughs> yes, <No, laughs> no, labor a-
1: through reading it. <laughs> you know, I'm a I'm a academic. I write. You know, I write books for partly for you know undergraduate and graduate students, and fellow researchers and professors. Now, some of it reaches further and, you know, it gets packaged in different forms, right, mm-hmm. depending on the audience. So I, I've presented the book, you know, at, at bookshops and at different little talks and visiting colleges. And, you know, there, there's a lot of stories here. And often those stories connect to communities and, and you know, to people from, from Haiti or from the Caribbean region. And, and so I, you know, I hope it can, it can go a little beyond the academic
0: audience. Okay. Well, that's what My Own Podcast is here for, to kind of break it all down, right? Exactly. (laughs) Right.
1: (laughs) And I am a huge fan, I have to say, of the podcast. Oh my gosh, I've been learning so much listening to the interviews with so many amazing thinkers, authors, writers. It's great to hear people talk about their work.
0: And thank you for adding your voice and your expertise to to this uh, conversation we're all trying to have here, too. So I appreciate that. So let's get a few definitions out of the way for for the audience who are non-academic. Okay. (laughs) Non-academics. Okay. What's an anthropocene?
1: Okay. So that big word, anthropocene, is used to talk about the era in which humans have had such an effect on the earth's systems that it's left a geological mark. So we can, we were living in the Holocene, right? We, you know, when you break up the the eras of of the planet and there's was this argument that came that humans have actually changed the the geological era in which we live because it's so marked by human activity. Mm-hmm. Now there's a debate in the literature about when did this begin and how do we date it? And is it really something that is caused by anthros, meaning like man, right? Mm -hmm. The human species, or is it actually more specific to some groups of of people? That is, could we call it the capitalocene because it's caused by capitalists? Or Mm -hmm. could we call it the plantationocene because it actually... Is not just an era that began in the 20th century, but goes back to the plantation economy, the slave trade, the huge movements of people and plants and animals and commodities that kind of kicked off the era of modern industrial capitalism, which Mm -hmm. has left this geological mark as we know now through, you know, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, but also through mining, through uranium radiation that's been left around the world and plastics. Some people call it the plasticine. So Mm -hmm. there's all these different like play on words and names that have been thrown around. I decided in the book not to go into like the debate on, well, what should we call it? Mm I, I, I begin it with, you know, the Caribbean as the launching point of this kind of modern world that we live in and mm-hmm. that we're all trying to survive. And mm-hmm. I just use the word Anthropocene because it's become the most well-known of all mm-hmm. the words.
0: Is it a cross-disciplinary word or is it you a sociologist by training, right?
1: Yeah, this word came from scientists. It came from, okay. you know, the the geological sort of sure. understanding of the world, Perfect. but it's been adopted by sociologists, which I am, yes, and geographers and human humanists of, of different stripes.
0: Okay, cool. That's good. See, now it's no longer, you know, an academic term. Now, like, <laughs> yeah. what it means. A few more. What are mobilities?
1: Mobilities is a, it's a field that i actually helped create called the new mobilities paradigm and this was something that came out of around the the turn of the millennium right say like the, the early 2000s there was a lot of discussion of the idea of globalization and this idea that we'd live in a more global global world and it's a world of flows and everything is moving and I had been studying the Caribbean for a long time by that point. And I was like, well, it's not that new. There, have, there If we go back to the formation of the, the Caribbean and and everything we find there, mobilities, that is movement of people and commodities and ideas and cultures and languages, you can't really say it's new. And so partly it arose out of a critique of this kind of conversation that we now live in a borderless world of mobilities to say it has these deep historical roots, and they're rooted in a lot of inequality and power. And, Mm -hmm. you know, think of the slave trade, for example. When you think about mobilities, you have to think about who is moving and who has self-determination of their own movement And also how are human movements entangled with other kinds of movements? So mobilities is a a way, a field that studies all of these different mobilities and immobilities and power relations of movement and how they're entangled with each other.
0: And who the gatekeepers are and so on and so forth. Yes. Yeah, Yeah, that was quite an eye opener for me. I was like, wow, this makes a lot of sense. Is moving through cyberspace? A form of mobility. We can talk later on about digital power and all the other powers down down yeah. the line. Because the reason I ask that is, I find it quite revealing. During you know the pandemic, the early stage of the pandemic, and when a lot of schools around the country, you know, switched to online, and then everybody suddenly realized, oh shoot, you know, uh, certain sections of the urban core don't have access to the internet. And the role communities, and then there was a scrambling to to try to get uh, connectivity and access for people in uh, in these underserved communities. So, is is cyberspace a uh, form also has sort of the power structure in there too? The yes, you know? yeah,
1: exactly, exactly. And so, I was initially describing these kinds of physical mobilities, um, you know, moving through space, but In the field of mobilities research, we also talk about virtual mobilities and communicative mobilities. And that's exactly what you're talking about, is that we can sort of have virtual movement partly through cyberspace but we can also just have things like you know phone calls and remittances that people mm-hmm. send via their phones that that's another kind of mobility too so it, mm-hmm. it doesn't necessarily need an internet connection it it can be a mobile phone and then the other really fascinating part is as as you're describing, we switch between the physical and the virtual and the communicative mobilities. We mix them together in different ways. And Mm -hmm. so we talk about hybrid mobilities. And so when school goes online, you know, there's still a lot of physical mobility that might be involved in in how does a family arrange, for example, its work schedule and its home space and who's in which room and how how, who gets to go on the computer and all that Mm -hmm. stuff and then if you don't have access to those digital communication tools maybe you have to go to the library or you know mm-hmm. you have to find some other way to to be included and if you don't have access then yeah you're excluded and so there's also structural inequalities yeah. in who has access and who doesn't
0: and even if the library resources are available do you have the transportation to get there yeah yeah exactly yeah one last definition before we move through what's the difference between islanding and offshoring.
1: Oh, okay. This is a big (laughs) one. All right.
0: (laughs) Maybe you can start with the uh, definition of each first and then you can tell the difference after. Okay.
1: So islanding is a way to talk about islands without assuming that it's just, you know, a geographical piece of land surrounded by ocean. Islanding is a way to think about the active process by which some people or I, you know, cultures or places are islanded and island. I, by adding the, the, the action to it, it reminds us that it's a kind of, it's a matter of thinking and relationships and movements. So for example, to give an example um, of islanding in action, when Hurricane Maria hit Puerto Rico and there was a really weak response from the federal government and President Trump at the time, you know, you, everyone remembers how he showed up one t- day finally and was like throwing paper towels at the crowd. But one of the things he said in that moment, he's like, well, Puerto Rico's an island and it's really hard to to get, you know, the response teams there. And of course, everyone knows that that's kind of an absurd thing to say because there's constant air traffic back and forth to Puerto Rico. And so by representing it as an island, he was islanding it. He was saying, oh, it's so far away or it's so hard to get to. So it's that it's that combination of like, okay, yeah, there's the ocean around it, but it's how do we think about that? Do we think of the ocean as a connection, as a a bridge as a way to move back and forth? And do we think of airspace, which is our main way of, you know, honestly of traveling these days, do we think of who has access to that airspace and that kind of mobility to to connect places? So reminding ourselves that islands are not just self-evident things, but they're part of these processes. Mm -hmm. Offshoring is a really different concept that relates to the economy and what we, you know, everyone has knows about how businesses kind of sometimes have moved to what we call offshore locations. And what we mean by that is like outside of the United States, they move to foreign locations, but also that there's a way to create these special economic zones or sort of tax havens. Mm-hmm. So, for example, Delaware was became a famous kind of place for banking that was in a sort of special economic area where it was untaxed in certain ways. And so offshoring is also an invention. It's It, it can be literally on an island, but it can also just be a place that's sort of carved out from normal regulations and laws and taxation policies. Mm. So, But a lot of what people refer to offshoring is, for example, like when the Industry, which used to be so strong in certain parts of the U.S. moved overseas, right? Mm-hmm. So New Jersey, for example, and New York used to be big textile producing regions with factories and you know people making clothes and sewing. In fact, my great grandmother, you know, when she immigrated here from Russia, she worked in textile, you know, what you know sweat, sweatshops, right, in, mm-hmm. in New York City, mm-hmm. and. Those what we call sweatshops move to places like Haiti or to Mexico, to the maquiadores, right on the u s Mexico border. That's a kind of offshoring
0: also you're right. How can we reach out to another culture or place, learn from it, and recognize our historical ties without consuming or appropriating it? and the And the very existence of this book, its production, is its production an act of consuming or appropriating Caribbean or Haitian cultures? And if so, am I complicit by inviting you on the show?
1: <laughs> yeah, good question. So I I hope that we, in, in bringing this question to our attention, that we can engage in conversations where we are not complicit in consuming or appropriating, that is, when I when I let, let me let's go to the beginning, when I started studying the Caribbean region, there's that question. Well, you're not from here. I was from Philadelphia. Right. I'm not. And I and I was going to study initially for my Ph.D. research. I was studying Jamaica and Haiti in the 19th century. I was inspired because like some of your other authors who you've interviewed have have spoken about, the Haitian revolution had been so silenced. And I was studying, you know, the American revolution and the French revolution. And I was growing up in in Philadelphia, which claimed itself as, you know, the the seat of the, you know, Independence Hall and the Liberty Bell and all of that, you know, create, you know, the American revolution and the beginnings of democracy. And I was like, when I learned about the Haitian revolution, which was not until, you know, really till college and sort of grad school, reading more about it, I was like, why, why didn't we learn about this? So in that sense, I think it's important for us to take a journey that leads us to read about and learn from and listen to the thinkers and authors and writers and artists from another place. Then to not appropriate, appropriate them or their work or their culture means you learn from it, but you also continue to like uplift it, cite it, recognize the significance of the work that people have done there, for example, in Haiti or in Jamaica or in Caribbean studies more broadly. And so, you know, I'm thinking about that at the same time, very conscious of the mechanisms of privilege and structured inequality that allow some people to get PhDs and do research and write books and get publicity and be on podcasts, you know? Mm -hmm. So, but I hope that things like your podcast are actually kind of bringing us together in conversations with the the places, the people, the audiences who inspired this work in the first place.
0: As you, as you look across the uh, Caribbean region, uh, all the issues facing all of these countries, you cite uh, transnational problems related to things like governance mobilities and quote, the constant throtting of alternative visions of existence unquote, and, and broad strokes, we can get into the details later. What's the through lines keeping these countries in the regions you cover in the book from developing on their own terms? what are some of the things you, you kind of noticed and they kept repeating themselves, whether it's, you know, it's uh, Puerto Rico or Haiti or what, what? Yeah. What's the got to you?
1: So, I mean, I guess the big issue would be what we might call extractive racial capitalism. And from, you know, from the moment Christopher Columbus showed up, right. And, Right through the eighteenth the century period of revolutions and the nineteenth century period of industrialization into you know twentieth century and globalization, each phase of the 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 so-called development of the Caribbean has been a form of extraction and exploitation of labor, of racialized labor, whether it was the initial effort to enslave the indigenous people there. Then the the African slave trade, then the indentured labor kind of movements of people from India or from China, as well as some from Europe as well. And then the more recent forms of like low wage export processing zones and also tourism, I have to say. Mm -hmm. They're each premised on this kind of exploitative and extractive system that takes the labor that takes the natural environment that takes the resources, mining, oil drilling, and and leaves basically a ne- a negative deficit behind, right? Mm-hmm. It, w- which, you know, Walter Rodney theorized as you know underdevelopment, right? Your, how Europe underdeveloped Africa, and mm-hmm. the so that idea of underdevelopment, I think, as an active process probably underlies my my initial sort of understanding of the region.
0: Mm-hmm. You write that you wanted to understand, quote, the ethics of re- relationality with other cultures into the ways in which we might potentially listen to one another. W- what do you mean by ethics? Yeah. ethics of relation- yeah. Relationality. And what cultures were you referring to, the Caribbean and the West, or were it just the two main ones you had in mind?
1: Yeah, no. And uh, well, anywhere, really, but including Europe, Africa, the Mm -hmm. Americas, broadly speaking. And that is to say that, you know, that there's the the representation of Haiti that we often see in the in the American media is as if it were somewhere else. It's somewhere not connected to us. And oh, it has all these problems. And then, oh, why is it like that? You know, And what happened and what makes it like that? And I want our starting point to recognize that we are already deeply connected. We are mm-hmm. in relation to what's happening there. So, you know, the the recent somewhat controversial big series of articles in the New York Times on the Haitian debt or so-called ransom kind of is what historians have been trying to bring to light for a long time, mm-hmm. and which I've been committed to writing about in my work for, you know, 20 years. I, in, in 1999, I was writing about reparations and the debt that Haiti had paid and how we, we owed it to, to sort of pay that money back. So that's been on the agenda for a long time. And it's part of understanding our ethical relationship. So when we see poverty, when we see somewhere that's called the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, to understand that our wealth, our privilege, our, you know, success in development is connected to that. They're part of the same process. Mm-hmm. And that applies across, you know, all, all the countries. Really, it's not it's not just the Caribbean, it's everywhere.
0: Can you uh, tell us, expand on the community-based peasant democracy that you say offer a powerful set of alternative visions of what self-determination should be?
1: Yeah, so this was so important to how I came into sort of understanding work on contemporary Haiti is that, as you know, I started out as a historical sociologist. I started out doing archival work and... I was looking at the what were called peasant movements in the in the 19th century. And there had been so, you know, a lot of people focus on the Haitian Revolution, right? And, and it's really important to, to unsilence that and to to recognize the world significance of the Haitian Revolution. But I became curious at the fact that about a generation or so after the revolution there were political uprisings of people who who could be described using this word peasant peasants meaning small farmers small landholders and they were dissatisfied with the state of freedom or liberation or what they expected the revolution to deliver and the same thing was happening in jamaica after british emancipation about a generation later there was an uprising called the Marant Bay Rebellion. In Haiti, there was what's called the Piquet Rebellion. Mm -hmm. And you could compare the United States, for example, after the period of reconstruction and then what was called Southern Redemption and the backlash against it, that those emancipations, whether they were revolutionary or British abolition or the U.S. Civil War, they did not lead to the kind of freedom that people expected. And what amazed me in the archives, when you start to read what were those people saying who were involved in those uprisings, those peasant rebellions, they were, they were calling for true democracy. They wanted real political equality and participation and self-determination. And it was a critique of the way in which certain kinds of elites had taken over the, the state after the process of, you know, revolution, or in terms of the process of emancipation, they were never sort of fully included in the state. So when you look in those archives, and you read what people are saying, I argue that that is true democracy, that that is the impetus towards democracy. It's not what's coming from you know, the elites in Washington, D.C. or in Philadelphia or in British Parliament. It's what's coming from below, from the mm-hmm. peasants, from the people. And what they were doing was a kind of direct democracy. They were meeting in associations together. They were choosing their own leaders and they were sharing land. They were combining work. They were doing like many things that we can think of as the roots of, of a, what I call a, a kind of public sphere, a counterpublic. Mm-hmm. And I, and anyway, to finish this story, when I went to Haiti for the first time in, it was about 1997, I believe, I discovered that there were movements that called themselves Paysan, right? There was Tête Collet Ti Paysan, there was Movement Papay, Paysan de Papay. There was, you know, these political movements, and they were mobilizing the same Discourses, the same arguments, the same mm-hmm. call for rural development, for people's inclusion, for real democratization. And so that kind of blew my mind that for like more than 150 years, right, that, that those groups were still the sort of forefront of democratization movements. And that's probably true not just in Haiti, but elsewhere, like across Central America and other regions.
0: Do you think that kind of local cooperation, if you will, you know, the LACU, can that scale in the 21st century, you know, space where you have to deal with climate change and pandemics or, yeah. yeah. So can that scale at the local level? I get it. And, you know, but is there, is there, is there a need for centralized, trusted government body to handle the 21st century type of issues that we have yeah. to deal
1: with? Oh, that's such a good question, because you know, it, it's very easy to get caught up in what could be seen as a romanticization mm-hmm. right, of these grassroots movements. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think that's a, a problem uh, social movements that engage in, in forms of sort of local or direct democracy, mm-hmm. as people say, "Well, that's not realistic, and can you scale that up? and you can't actually run a country that way. But on the other hand, I would argue that those the visions that those movements have have been, as, as you mentioned, actively thwarted, they've been suppressed, they've been held back. So they haven't had the opportunity to sort of flourish and, and grow. Mm-hmm. And that especially in a world faced by climate change, when we talk about community resilience, when we talk about climate adaptation, more than ever, we need like locally based resilient communities that can kind of help govern themselves, that can help make decisions, that can help understand how decisions will impact on them locally. And so, yes, we might, we we still need some centralized, you know, state structures of some kind to help organize our societies. But can we do that hand in hand with, the the movements from below, the movements that are connected to people's real lives and and needs and interests.
0: You wrote Haiti quote Haiti can also be understood as an offshoring of disaster, keeping it at arm's length and safely enclosed. That's just an example of islanding and offshoring that you defined earlier for us. Can you give us p- specific examples of that as far as Haiti is concerned?
1: Yeah. So this was crucial after, so I was writing about the 2010 earthquake and the immediate reaction to it. And, and I mean, I think a lot of people were immediately moved by what had happened. They, you know, it was very traumatizing and compelling, like what a horrible thing. There was a great wave of sympathy for, mm-hmm. for what happened there, and people wanted to help. And so they wanted to like give money, and there was all these campaigns to sort of give donations to, to sort of respond to the earthquake and the hundreds of thousands of people that were killed and made homeless, and it's such a horrible and tragic event. But what we learned at, at the very moment of that happening was that the U.S. military came in, To occupy basically the airport. They took over the airport in Port au Prince and put it under US military control. And they also sent boats, ships to surround Haiti. And the first thing they engaged in was not bringing help to people. The very first thing they did was to broadcast messages for people to stay where they were, to not try to leave the island. And they intercepted boats of people who actually did try to leave and they sent them back. And when they had the airport under control, they also stopped humanitarian flights from landing initially. So there was criticism that came in from Medecins Sans Frontieres and you know French and Brazilian and some other aid groups that they were unable to land their flights in the first 24 48, you know, hours after the earthquake because of that US military control. And that Initial containment, <clears throat> then you could say, like, extended into that entire emergency response mm. months, which was that Haitians were unable to move freely and seek relatives and assistance, you know, people who had connections in the United States. There were a few hundred thousand people who were able to leave who were either already had U.S. citizenship mm-hmm. or had visas and passports already in hand and could travel to the U.S. during this like traumatic moment when so many institutions had collapsed. But otherwise, the disaster, the, the a response was to contain it, to keep people there. And the people bringing aid were able to fly back and forth easily. Mm-hmm.
0: I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Please follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at Negmawon Podcast. That's Mawon with a W, not an R.